Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Section 5 of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section five, chapters seventeen through twenty. Chapter seventeen, I get ready to pay some calls. On awaking next morning, my first thoughts were of the affair with Kolpikoff. Once again, I muttered to myself and stamped about the room, but there was no help for it. Today was the last day that I was to spend in Moscow, and it was to be spent, by Papa's orders, in my paying a round of calls which he had written out for me on a piece of paper, his first solicitude on our account being not so much for our morals or our education as for our due observance of the covenances. On the piece of paper was written in his swift, broken handwriting, 1. Prince Ivan Ivanovitch, without fail. 2. The Iwins, without fail. 3. Prince Michael. 4. The Princess Nekhludoff and Madame Valakina, if you wish. Of course I was also to call upon my guardian, upon the rector, and upon the professors. These last-mentioned calls, however, Dmitri advised me not to pay, saying that it was not only unnecessary to do so, but not the thing. However, there were the other visits to be got through. It was the first two on the list, those marked as to be paid without fail, that most alarmed me. Prince Ivan Ivanovitch was a commander-in-chief, as well as old, wealthy, and a bachelor. Consequently, I foresaw that vis-à-vis -vis conversation between him and myself—myself myself a sixteen-year-old student—was not likely to be interesting. As for the Iwans, they too were rich, the father being a depart—mistake, the father being a departmental official of high rank who had only on one occasion called at our house during my grandmother's time. Since her death I had remarked that the younger Iwin had fought shy of us, and seemed to give himself airs. The elder of the pair, I had heard, had now finished his course in jurisprudence, and gone to hold a post in St. Petersburg, while his brother Sergius, the former object of my worship, was also in St. Petersburg, as a great fat cadet in the Corps of Pages. When I was a young man not only did I dislike intercourse with people who thought themselves above me, but such intercourse was for me an unbearable torture, owing partly to my constant dread of being snubbed, and partly to my straining every faculty of my intellect to prove to such people my independence. Yet, even if I failed to fulfill the latter part of my father's instructions, I felt that I must carry out the former. I paced my room and eyed my clothes ready disposed on chairs—the tunic, the sword, and the cap. Just as I was about to set forth, old Grap called to congratulate me, bringing with him Ilinka. Grap Pear was a Russianized German, and an intolerably effusive, sycophantic old man, 
who was more often than not tipsy. As a rule, he visited us only when he wanted to ask for something, and although Papa sometimes entertained him in his study, old Grapp never came to dinner with us. With his subserviency and begging propensities went such a faculty of good humour and a power of making himself at home that every one looked upon his attachment to us as a great honour. For my part, however, I never liked him, and felt ashamed when he was speaking. I was much put out by the arrival of these visitors, and made no effort to conceal the fact. Upon Alinka I had been so used to look down, and he so used to recognize my right to do so, that it displeased me to think that he was now as much a matriculated student as myself. In some way he appeared to me to have made a point of attaining that equality. I greeted the pair coldly, and without offering them any refreshment, since it went against the grain to do so, and I thought they could ask for anything if they wanted it without my first inviting them to state their requirements, gave orders for the droshki to be got ready. Ilinka was a good-natured, extremely moral, and far from stupid young fellow, yet for all that what people call a person of moods. That is to say, for no apparent reason he was for ever in some pronounced frame of mind, now lachrymose, now frivolous, now touchy on the very smallest point. At the present moment he appeared to be in the last-named mood. He kept looking from his father to myself without speaking, except when directly addressed, at which times he smiled the self-deprecatory forced smile under which he was accustomed to conceal his feelings, and more especially that feeling of shame for his father which he must have experienced in our house. "'So, Nicholas Petrovitch,' the old man said to me, following me everywhere about the room as I went through the operation of dressing while all the while his fat fingers kept turning over and over a silver snuff-box with which my grandmother had once presented me. "'As soon as ever I heard from my son that you had passed your examination so well, though of course your abilities are well known to every one, I at once came to congratulate you, my dear boy. Why, I have carried you on my shoulders before now, and God knows that I love you as though you were my own son. My Elinka, too, has always been fond of you, and feels quite at home with you. Meanwhile the said Alinka remained sitting silently by the window, apparently absorbed in contemplation of my three-cornered cap, and every now and then angrily muttering something in an undertone. "'Now I also wanted to ask you, Nicholas Petrovitch,' his father went on, "'whether my son did well in the examinations. He tells me that he is going to be in the same faculty as yourself, and that therefore you will be able to keep an eye on him, and advise him, and so on.' "'Oh, yes, I suppose he passed well,' I replied, with a glance at Alinka, who, conscious of my gaze, reddened violently, and ceased to move his lips about. "'And might he spend the day with you?' was the father's next request, which he made with a deprecatory smile, as though he stood in actual awe of me, yet always keeping so close to me, wherever I moved, that the fumes of the drink and tobacco in which he had been indulging were constantly perceptible to my nostrils. I felt greatly vexed at his placing me in such a false position towards his son, as well as at his distracting my attention from what was to me a highly important operation, namely, the operation of dressing. While over and above all I was annoyed by the smell of liquor with which he followed me about. Accordingly, I said very coldly that I could not have the pleasure of Alinka's company that day, since I should be out. Ah. "'I suppose you are going to see your sister?' put in Alinka, with a smile, but without looking at me. "'Well, I too have business to attend to.' At this I felt even more put out, as well as pricked with compunction, 
So to soften my refusal a little I hastened to say that the reason why I should not be at home that day was that I had to call upon the Prince Ivan Ivanovitch, the Princess Kornakoff, and the Monsieur Ivan, who held such an influential post, as well as probably to dine with the Princess Nekhludoff, for I thought that on learning what important folk I was in the habit of mixing with, the Grafs would no longer think it worth while to pretend to me. However, just as they were leaving I invited Alinka to come and see me another day. But he only murmured something unintelligible, and it was plain that he meant never to set foot in the house again. When they had departed, I set off on my round of calls. Woloda, whom I had asked that morning to come with me in order that I might not feel quite so shy as when altogether alone, had declined on the ground that for two brothers to be seen driving in one droshky would appear so horribly proper. CHAPTER Eighteen, THE VOLOKIN FAMILY Accordingly I set off alone. My first call on the route lay at the Velakin mansion. It was now three years since I had seen Sonetchka, and my love for her had long become a thing of the past. Yet there still lingered in my heart a sort of clear, touching recollection of our bygone, childish affection. At intervals also during those three years I had found myself recalling her memory with such force and vividness that I had actually shed tears, and imagined myself to be in love with her again. But those occasions had not lasted more than a few minutes at a time, and had been long in recurring. I knew that Sonetchka and her mother had been abroad, that in fact they had been so for the last two years. Also I had heard that they had been in a carriage accident, and that Sonetchka's face had been so badly cut with the broken glass that her beauty was marred. As I drove to their house I kept recalling the old Sonetchka to my mind, and wondering what she would look like when I met her. Somehow I imagined that after her two years' sojourn abroad she would look very tall with a beautiful waist, and though sedate and imposing extremely attractive. Somehow also my imagination refused to picture her with her face disfigured with scars. But on the contrary, since I had read somewhere of a lover who remained true to his adored one in spite of her disfigurement with smallpox, strove to imagine that I was in love with Sonetchka, for the purpose of priding myself on holding to my troth in spite of her scars. Yet, as a matter of fact, I was not really in love with her during that drive. But having once stirred up in myself old memories of love, felt prepared to fall into that condition and the more so because of late my conscience had often been pricking me for having discarded so many of my old flames. The Velakins lived in a neat little wooden mansion approached by a courtyard. I gained admittance by ringing a bell, then a rarity in Moscow, and was received by a mincing, smartly attired page. He either could not or made no attempt to inform me whether there was any one at home, but leaving me alone in the dark hall ran off down a still darker corridor. For a long time I waited in solitude in this gloomy place, out of which, in addition to the front door and the corridor, there only opened a door which at the moment was closed. Rather surprised at the dismal appearance of the house, I came to the conclusion that the reason was that its inmates were still abroad. After five minutes, however, the door leading into the salon was opened by the page-boy, who then conducted me into a neat but not richly furnished drawing-room, where presently I was joined by Sonetchka. She was now seventeen years old, and very small and thin, as well as of an unhealthy pallor of face. No scars at all were visible, however, and the beautiful prominent eyes and bright cheerful smile were the same as I had known and loved in my childhood. 
I had not expected her to look at all like this, and therefore could not at once lavish upon her the sentiment which I had been preparing on the way. She gave me her hand in the English fashion, which was then as much a novelty as a doorbell, and bestowing upon mine a frank squeeze, sat down on the sofa by my side. "'Ah, how glad I am to see you, my dear Nicholas!' she said as she looked me in the face with an expression of pleasure so sincere that in the words, My dear Nicholas, I caught the purely friendly rather than the patronizing note. To my surprise she seemed to me simpler, kinder, and more sisterly after her foreign tour than she had been before it. True, I could now see that she had two small scars between her nose and temples, but her wonderful eyes and smile fitted in exactly with my recollections, and shone as of old. "'But how greatly you have changed,' she went on. "'You are quite grown up now, and I—I—well, what do you think of me?' "'I should never have known you,' I replied, despite the fact that at that moment I was thinking that I should have known her anywhere and always. "'Why, am I grown so ugly?' she inquired with a movement of her head. "'Oh, no, decidedly not,' I hastened to reply. "'But you have grown taller and older. As for being uglier, why, you are even—' "'Yes, yes, never mind. Do you remember our dances and games and St. Jerome and Madame Durat? As a matter of fact, I could not recollect any Madame Durat, but saw that Sonetchka was being led away by the joy of her childish recollections, and mixing them up a little. "'Ah, what a lovely time it was,' she went on, and once more there shone before me the same eyes and smile as I had always carried in my memory. While she had been speaking, I had been thinking over my position at the present moment and had come to the conclusion that I was in love with her. The instant, however, that I arrived at that result, my careless, happy mood vanished. A mist seemed to arise before me which concealed even her eyes and smile, and blushing hotly, I became tongue-tied and ill at ease. "'But times are different now,' she went on with a sigh and a little lifting of her eyebrows. "'Everything seems worse than it used to be, and ourselves too. Is it not so, Nicholas?' I could return her no answer, but sat silently looking at her. "'Where are those Iwins and Kornikoffs now? Do you remember them?' she continued, looking, I think, with some curiosity, at my blushing, downcast countenance. What splendid times we used to have! Still I could not answer her. The next moment I was relieved from this awkward position by the entry of old Madame Velakin into the room. Rising, I bowed, and straightway recovered my faculty of speech. On the other hand, an extraordinary change now took place in Sonetchka. All her gaiety and bonhomie disappeared. Her smile became quite a different one, and except for the point of her shortness of stature, she became just the lady from abroad whom I expected to find in her. Yet for this change there was no apparent reason, since her mother smiled every whit as pleasantly, and expressed in her every movement just the same benignity as of old. Seating herself in her armchair, the old lady signed to me to come and sit beside her, after which she said something to her daughter in English, and Sonetchka left the room, a fact which still further helped to relieve me. Madame then inquired after my father and brother, and passed on to speak of her great bereavement, the loss of her husband. Presently, however, she seemed to become sensible of the fact that I was not helping much in the conversation, for she gave me a look as much as to say, if now, my dear boy, you were to get up, to take your leave, and to depart, it would be well. But a curious circumstance had overtaken me. While she had been speaking of her bereavement, I had recalled to myself not only the fact that I was in love, but the probability that the mother knew of it, 
whereupon such a fit of bashfulness had come upon me that i felt powerless to put any member of my body to its legitimate use i knew that if i were to rise and walk i should have to think where to plant each foot what to do with my head what with my hands and so on in a word i foresaw that i should be very much as i had been on the night when i partook too freely of champagne and therefore since i felt uncertain of being able to manage myself if i did rise i ended by feeling unable to rise meanwhile i should say sonetchka had returned to the room with her work and seated herself in a far corner a corner whence as i was nevertheless sensible she could observe me madame must have felt some surprise as she gazed at my crimson face and noted my complete immobility but i decided that it was better to continue sitting in that absurd position than to risk something unpleasant by getting up and walking thus i sat on and on in the hope that some unforeseen chance would deliver me from my predicament that unforeseen chance at length presented itself in the person of an unforeseen young man who entered the room with an air of being one of the household and bowed to me politely as he did so whereupon madame rose excused herself to me for having to speak with her homme d'affaires and finally gave me a glance which said well if you do mean to go on sitting there for ever at least i can't drive you away accordingly with a great effort i also rose but finding it impossible to do any leave-taking moved away towards the door followed by the pitying glances of mother and daughter all at once i stumbled over a chair although it was lying quite out of my route the reason for my stumbling being that my whole attention was so centred upon not tripping over the carpet driving through the fresh air however where i first muttered and fidgeted about so much that kuzma my coachman asked me what was the matter i soon found this feeling pass away and began to meditate quietly concerning my love for sonetchka and her relations with her mother which had appeared to me rather strange when afterwards i told my father that mother and daughter had not seemed on the best of terms with one another he said yes madame leads the poor girl an awful life with her meanness yet added my father with a greater display of feeling than a man might naturally conceive for a mere relative she used to be such an original dear charming woman i cannot think what has made her change so much by the way you didn't notice a secretary fellow about did you fancy a russian lady having an affair with a secretary yes i saw him i replied and was he at least good-looking no not at all it is extraordinary concluded papa with a cough and an irritable hoist of his shoulder well i am in love was my secret thought to myself as i drove along in my droshky chapter nineteen the kornikoffs my second call on the route lay at the kornikoffs who lived on the first floor of a large mansion facing the arbat the staircase of the building looked extremely neat and orderly yet in no way luxurious being lined only with drugget pinned down with highly polished brass rods nowhere were there any flowers or mirrors to be seen the salon too with its polished floor which i traversed on my way to the drawing-room was decorated in the same cold severe unostentatious style everything in it looked bright and solid but not new and pictures flower-stands and articles of bric-a-brac were wholly absent in the drawing-room i found some of the young princesses seated but seated with a sort of correct company air about them which gave one the impression that they sat like that only when guests were expected mamma will be here presently the eldest of them said to me as she seated herself by my side 
For the next quarter of an hour this young lady entertained me with such an easy flow of small talk that the conversation never flagged a moment. Yet somehow she made so patent the fact that she was just entertaining me that I felt not altogether pleased. Amongst other things she told me that their brother Stephen, whom they called Etienne, and who had been two years at the College of Cadets, had now received his commission. Whenever she spoke of him, and more particularly when she told me that he had flouted his mother's wishes by entering the Hussars, she assumed a nervous air, and immediately her sisters sitting there in silence also assumed a nervous air. When, again, she spoke of my grandmother's death, she assumed a mournful air, and immediately the others all did the same. Finally, when she recalled how I had once struck St. Jerome, and been expelled from the room, she laughed and showed her bad teeth, and immediately all the other princesses laughed and showed their bad teeth, too. Next the princess mother herself entered, a little dried-up woman with a wandering glance and a habit of always looking at somebody else when she was addressing one. Taking my hand, she raised her own to my lips for me to kiss it, which otherwise, not supposing it to be necessary, I should not have done. "'How pleased I am to see you,' she said with her usual clearness of articulation, as she gazed at her daughters. "'And how like your mother you look! Does he not, Lise?' Lise assented, though I knew for a fact that I did not resemble my mother in the least. "'And what a grown-up you have become! My Etienne, you will remember, is your second cousin—no, not second cousin—what is it, Lise? My mother was Barbara Dimitrevna, daughter of Dmitri Nikolovitch, and your grandmother was Natalia Nikolevna. "'Then he is our third cousin, Mamma," said the eldest girl. "'Oh, how you always confuse me!' was her mother's angry reply. "'Not third cousin, but cousin German. That is your relationship to Etienne. He is an officer now. Did you know it? It is not well that he should have his own way too much. You young men need keeping in hand, or—well, you are not vexed because your old aunt tells you the plain truth? I always kept Etienne strictly in hand, for I found it necessary to do so." "'Yes, that is how our relationship stands,' she went on. Prince Ivan Ivanovitch is my uncle, and your late mother's uncle also. Consequently, I must have been your mother's first cousin—no, second cousin. Yes, that is it. Tell me. Have you been to call on Prince Ivan yet? I said no, but that I was just going to." "'Ah! Is it possible?' she cried. "'Why, you ought to have paid him the first call of all. Surely you know that he stands to you in the position of a father? He has no children of his own, and his only heirs are yourself and my children. You ought to pay him all possible deference, both because of his age, and because of his position in the world, and because of everything else. I know that you young fellows of the present day think nothing of relationships, and are not fond of old men. Yet do you listen to me, your old aunt, for I am fond of you, and was fond of your mother, and had a great, a very great liking and respect for your grandmother. You must not fail to call upon him on any account. I said that I would certainly go, and since my present call seemed to me to have lasted long enough, I rose, and was about to depart, but she restrained me. "'No, wait a minute,' she cried. "'Where is your father, Lise? Go and tell him to come here. He will be so glad to see you,' she added, turning to me. Two minutes later Prince Michael entered. He was a short, thick-set gentleman, very slovenly dressed and ill-shaven, yet wearing such an air of indifference that he looked almost a fool. He was not in the least glad to see me. At all events he did not intimate that he was. But the princess, 
who appeared to stand in considerable awe of him, hastened to say, "'Is not Waldemar here?' She seemed to have forgotten my name. "'Exactly like his mother?' and she gave her husband a glance which forced him to guess what she wanted. Accordingly he approached me with his usual passionless, half-discontented expression, and held out to me an unshaven cheek to kiss. "'Why, you are not dressed yet, though you have to go out soon,' was the princess's next remark to him in the angry tone which she habitually employed in conversation with her domestics. "'It will only mean your offending some one again, and trying to set people against you.' "'In a moment, in a moment, mother,' said Prince Michael, and departed. I also made my bows, and departed. This was the first time I had heard of our being related to Prince Ivan Ivanovitch, and the news struck me unpleasantly. CHAPTER Twenty, THE IWINS As for the prospect of my call upon the Prince, it seemed even more unpleasant. However, the order of my route took me first to the Iwins who lived in a large and splendid mansion in Tverskaya Street. It was not without some nervousness that I entered the great portico, where a Swiss major-domo stood armed with his staff of office. To my inquiry as to whether any one was at home, he replied, "'Whom do you wish to see, sir? The general's son is within.' "'And the general himself?' I asked with forced assurance. "'I must report to him your business first. What may it be, sir?' said the major-domo as he rang a bell. Immediately the gaitered legs of a footman showed themselves on the staircase above, whereupon I was seized with such a fit of nervousness that I hastily bid the lackey say nothing about my presence to the general, since I would first see his son. By the time I had reached the top of the long staircase I seemed to have grown extremely small—metaphorically, I mean, not actually—and had very much the same feeling within me as had possessed my soul when my droshky drew up to the great portico, namely, a feeling as though Droshky, horse, and coachman had all of them grown extremely small, too. I found the general's son lying asleep on a sofa, with an open book before him. His tutor, Monsieur Frost, under whose care he still pursued his studies at home, had entered behind me with a sort of boyish tread, and now awoke his pupil. Iwin evinced no particular pleasure at seeing me, while I also seemed to notice that, while talking to me, he kept looking at my eyebrows. Although he was perfectly polite, I conceived that he was entertaining me much as the Princess Valakin had done, and that he not only felt no particular liking for me, but even that he considered my acquaintance in no way necessary to one who possessed his own circle of friends. All this arose out of the idea that he was regarding my eyebrows. In short, his bearing towards me appeared to be, as I recognized with an awkward sensation, very much the same as my own towards Alinka Grapp. I began to feel irritated, and to interpret every fleeting glance which he cast at M. Frost as a mute inquiry. Why has this fellow come to see me? After some conversation he remarked that his father and mother were at home. Would I not like to visit them, too? First I will go and dress myself, he added, as he departed to another room, notwithstanding that he had seemed to be perfectly well-dressed in a new frock-coat and white waistcoat in the present one. A few minutes later he reappeared in his university uniform, buttoned up to the chin, and we went downstairs together. The reception-rooms through which we passed were lofty and of great size, and seemed to be richly furnished with marble and gilt ornaments, chintz-covered settees, and a number of mirrors. Presently Madame Iwin met us, and we went into a little room behind the drawing-room, where, welcoming me in very friendly fashion, 
She seated herself by my side, and began to inquire after my relations. Closer acquaintance with Madame, whom I had seen only twice before, and that but for a moment on each occasion, impressed me favourably. She was tall, thin, and very pale, and looked as though she suffered from chronic depression and fatigue. Yet, though her smile was a sad one, it was very kind, and her large mournful eyes, with a slight cast in their vision, added to the pathos and attractiveness of her expression. Her attitude, while not precisely that of a hunchback, made her whole form droop, while her every movement expressed languor. Likewise, though her speech was deliberate, the timbre of her voice, and the manner in which she lisped her R's and L's, were very pleasing to the ear. Finally, she did not entertain me. Unfortunately, the answers which I returned to her questions concerning my relations seemed to afford her a painful interest, and to remind her of happier days, with the result that when presently her son left the room she gazed at me in silence for a moment, and then burst into tears. As I sat there in mute bewilderment, I could not conceive what I had said to bring this about. At first I felt sorry for her as she sat there weeping with downcast eyes. Next I began to think to myself, ought I not try to comfort her, and how ought that to be done? Finally, I began to feel vexed with her for placing me in such an awkward position. Surely my appearance is not so moving as all that, I reflected. Or is she merely acting like this to see what I shall do under the circumstances? Yet it would not do for me to go, I continued to myself, for that would look too much as though I were fleeing to escape her tears. Accordingly I began fidgeting about on my seat, in order to remind her of my presence. "'Oh, how foolish of me!' at length she said, as she gazed at me for a moment, and tried to smile. "'There are days when one weeps for no reason whatever.' She felt about for her handkerchief, and then burst out weeping more violently than before. "'Oh, dear! How silly of me to be forever crying like this! Yet I was so fond of your mother. We were such friends. We were—' At this point she found her handkerchief, and, burying her face in it, went on crying. Once more I found myself in the same protracted dilemma. Though vexed, I felt sorry for her, since her tears appeared to be genuine, even though I also had the idea that it was not so much for my mother that she was weeping, as for the fact that she was unhappy, and had known happier days. How it would all have ended I do not know, had not her son reappeared and said that his father desired to see her. Thereupon she rose and was just about to leave the room, when the general himself entered. He was a small, grizzled, thick-set man, with bushy black eyebrows, a grey, close-cropped head, and a very stern, haughty expression of countenance. I rose and bowed to him, but the general, who was wearing three stars on his green frock-coat, not only made no response to my salutation, but scarcely even looked at me, so that all at once I felt as though I were not a human being at all but only some negligible object such as a settee or a window, or, if I were a human being, as though I were quite indistinguishable from such a negligible object. "'Then you have not yet written to the Countess, my dear,' he said to his wife in French, and with an imperturbable yet determined expression on his countenance. "'Good-bye, Monsieur Ertenieff,' Madame said to me, in her turn as she made a proud gesture with her head and looked at my eyebrows, just as her son had done. I bowed to her, and again to her husband, but my second salutation made no more impression upon him than if a window had just been opened or closed. Nevertheless, the younger Iwin accompanied me to the door, and on the way told me that he was to go to St. Petersburg University, 
since his father had been appointed to a post in that city, and young Iwin named a very high office in the service. "'Well, his papa may do whatever he likes,' I muttered to myself as I climbed into the Doroshki, "'but at all events I will never set foot in that house again. His wife weeps and looks at me as though I were the embodiment of woe, while that old pig of a general does not even give me a bow. However, I will get even with him some day. How I meant to do that I do not know, but my words nevertheless came true. Afterwards, I frequently found it necessary to remember the advice of my father when he said that I must cultivate the acquaintanceship of the Iwins, and not expect a man in the position of General Iwin to pay any attention to a boy like myself. But I had figured in that position long enough. End of section 5. Recording by Bill Borst. Section 6 of Youth by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 6. Chapters 21 through 24. Chapter 21. Prince Ivan Ivanovitch. Now for the last call, the visit to Nikitskaya Street, I said to Kuzma, and we started for Prince Ivan Ivanovitch's mansion. Towards the end, a round of calls usually brings one a certain amount of self-assurance. Consequently, I was approaching the prince's abode in quite a tranquil frame of mind, when suddenly I remembered the Princess Kornikoff's words that I was his heir, and at the same moment caught sight of two carriages waiting at the portico. Instantly my former nervousness returned. Both the old major-domo who opened the door to me, and the footman who took my coat, and the two male and three female visitors whom I found in the drawing-room, and most of all Prince Ivan Ivanovitch himself, whom I found clad in a company frock-coat, and seated on a sofa, seemed to look at me as an heir, and so to eye me with ill-will. Yet the prince was very gracious, and after kissing me, that is to say, after pressing his cold, dry, flabby lips to my cheek for a second, asked me about my plans and pursuits, jested with me, inquired whether I still wrote verses of the kind which I used to indite in honour of my grandmother's birthdays, and invited me to dine with him that day. Nevertheless, in proportion as he grew the kinder, the more did I feel persuaded that his civility was only intended to conceal from me the fact that he disliked the idea of my being his heir. He had a custom, due to his false teeth, of which his mouth possessed a complete set, of raising his upper lip a little as he spoke, and producing a slight whistling sound from it. And whenever, on the present occasion, he did so, it seemed to me that he was saying to himself, A boy, a boy, I know it, and my heir, too, my heir. When we were children we had been used to calling the prince dear uncle, but now in my capacity of heir I could not bring my tongue to the phrase, while to say your highness, as did one of the other visitors, seemed derogatory to my self-esteem. Consequently, never once during that visit did I call him anything at all. The personage, however, who most disturbed me was the old princess who shared with me the position of prospective inheritor, and who lived in the prince's house. While seated beside her at dinner, I felt firmly persuaded that the reason why she would not speak to me was that she disliked me for being her co-heir, and that the prince, for his part, paid no attention to our side of the table for the reason 
that the princess and myself hoped to succeed him, and so were alike distasteful in his sight. "'You cannot think how I hated it all,' I said to Dmitrieff the same evening, in a desire to make a parade of disliking the notion of being an heir. Somehow I thought it the thing to do. "'You cannot think how I loathed the whole two hours that I spent there. Yet he is a fine-looking old fellow, and was very kind to me,' I added, wishing, among other things, to disabuse my friend of any possible idea that my loathing had arisen out of the fact that I had felt so small. It is only the idea that people may be classing me with the princess who lives with him, and who licks the dust off his boots. He is a wonderful old man, and good and considerate to everybody, but it is awful to see how he treats the princess. Money is a detestable thing, and ruins all human relations. Do you know, I think it would be far the best thing for me to have an open explanation with the prince, I went on, to tell him that I respect him as a man, but think nothing of being his heir, and that I desire him to leave me nothing, since that is the only condition on which I can, in future, visit his house." Instead of bursting out laughing when I said this, Dmitri pondered a while in silence, and then answered, "'You are wrong. Either you ought to refrain from supposing that people may be classing you with this princess of whom you speak, or, if you do suppose such a thing, you ought to suppose further that people are thinking what you yourself know quite well, namely, that such thoughts are so utterly foreign to your nature that you despise them and would never make them a basis for action. Suppose, however, that people do suppose you to suppose such a thing. Well, to sum up, he added, feeling that he was getting a little mixed in his pronouncements, you had much better not suppose anything of the kind. My friend was perfectly right though it was not until long, long afterwards that experience of life taught me the evil that comes of thinking, still worse of saying, much that seems very fine, taught me that there are certain thoughts which should always be kept to oneself, since brave words seldom go with brave deeds. I learnt, then, that the mere fact of giving utterance to a good intention often makes it difficult, nay, impossible, to carry that good intention into effect. Yet how is one to refrain from giving utterance to the brave, self-sufficient impulses of youth? Only long afterwards does one remember and regret them, even as one incontinently plucks a flower before its blooming, and subsequently finds it lying crushed and withered on the ground. The very next morning I, who had just been telling my friend Dmitri that money corrupts all human relations, and had, as we have seen, squandered the whole of my cash on pictures and Turkish pipes, accepted a loan of twenty roubles, which he suggested should pay for my travelling expenses into the country, and remained a long while thereafter in his debt. CHAPTER Twenty Two, INTIMATE CONVERSATION WITH MY FRIEND This conversation of ours took place in a phaeton on the way to Kuntsevo. Dmitri had invited me in the morning to go with him to his mother's, and had called for me after luncheon, the idea being that I should spend the evening, and perhaps also pass the night, at the country-house where his family lived. Only when we had left the city and exchanged its grimy streets and the unbearably deafening clatter of its pavements for the open vista of fields and the subdued grinding of carriage-wheels on a dusty high road, while the sweet spring air and prospect enveloped us on every side, 
did I awake from the new impressions and sensations of freedom into which the past two days had plunged me. Dimitri was in his kind and sociable mood. That is to say, he was neither frowning nor blinking nervously, nor straightening his neck in his collar. For my own part, I was congratulating myself on those noble sentiments which I have expressed above, in the belief that they had led him to overlook my shameful encounter with Kolpikoff, and to refrain from despising me for it. Thus we talked together on many an intimate subject which even a friend seldom mentions to a friend. He told me about his family whose acquaintance I had not yet made, about his mother, his aunt, and his sister, as also about her whom Woloda and Dubkoff believed to be his flame, and always spoke of as the lady with the chestnut locks. Of his mother he spoke with a certain cold and formal commendation, as though to forestall any further mention of her. His aunt he extolled enthusiastically, though with a touch of condescension in his tone. His sister he scarcely mentioned at all, as though averse to doing so in my presence. But on the subject of the lady with the chestnut locks, whose real name was Lubov Sergeyevna, and who was a grown-up young lady living on a family footing with the Nekhludoffs, he discoursed with animation. "'Yes, she is a wonderful woman,' he said, with a conscious reddening of the face, yet looking me in the eyes with dogged temerity. "'True, she is no longer young, and even rather elderly, as well as by no means good-looking. But as for loving a mere featherhead, a mere beauty, well, I never could understand that, for it is such a silly thing to do.' Dmitri said this as though he had just discovered a most novel and extraordinary truth. I am certain, too, that such a soul, such a heart and principles, as are hers, are not to be found elsewhere in the world of the present day." I do not know whence he had derived the habit of saying that few good things were discoverable in the world of the present day, but at all events he loved to repeat the expression, and it somehow suited him. Only I am afraid, he went on quietly, after thus annihilating all such men as were foolish enough to admire mere beauty. I am afraid that you will not understand or realize her quickly. She is modest, even secretive, and by no means fond of exhibiting her beautiful and surprising qualities. Now my mother, who, as you will see, is a noble, sensible woman, has known Lubov Sergeyevna for many years, yet even to this day she does not properly understand her. Shall I tell you why I was out of temper last evening when you were questioning me? Well. You must know that the day before yesterday Lubov asked me to accompany her to Ivan Yakovlevitch's—you have heard of him, I suppose, the fellow who seems to be mad, but who in reality is a very remarkable man. Well, Lubov is extremely religious, and understands Ivan Yakovlevitch to the full. She often goes to see him, and converses with him, and gives him money for the poor, money which she has earned herself. She is a marvellous woman, as you will see. Well. I went with her to Ivan's, and felt very grateful to her for having afforded me the opportunity of exchanging a word with so remarkable a man. But my mother could not understand our action at all, and discerned in it only superstition. Consequently, last night she and I quarrelled for the first time in our lives—a very bitter one it was, too," he concluded with a convulsive shrug of his shoulders, as though the mention of it recalled the feelings which he had then experienced. "'And what are your intentions about it all?' I inquired, to divert him from such a disagreeable recollection. That is to say, how do you imagine it is going to turn out? Do you ever speak to her about the future, 
or about how your love or friendship are going to end? Do you mean do I intend to marry her eventually? he inquired, in his turn, with a renewed blush, but turning himself round and looking me boldly in the face. Yes, certainly, I replied, as I settled myself down. We are both of us grown up, as well as friends, so we may as well discuss our future life as we drive along. No one could very well overlook or overhear us now. Why should I not marry her? he went on in response to my reassuring reply. It is my aim, as it should be the aim of every honourable man, to be as good and as happy as possible, and with her, if she should still be willing when I have become more independent, I should be happier and better than with the greatest beauty in the world." Absorbed in such conversation, we hardly noticed that we were approaching Gunsebo, or that the sky was becoming overcast and beginning to threaten rain. On the right the sun was slowly sinking behind the ancient trees of the Kutsebo Park. One half of its brilliant disk obscured with grey subluminous cloud, and the other half sending forth spokes of flaming light which threw the old trees into striking relief as they stood there with their dense crowns of green showing against a blue patch of sky. The light and shimmer of that patch contrasted sharply with the heavy pink cloud which lay massed above a young birch-tree visible on the horizon before us, while a little further to the right the party-coloured roofs of the Kunsebo mansion could be seen projecting above a belt of trees and undergrowth, one side of them reflecting the glittering rays of the sun, and the other side harmonizing with the more lowering portion of the heavens. Below us, and to the left, showed the still blue of a pond where it lay surrounded with pale green laburnums, its dull, concave-looking depths repeating the trees in more sombre shades of colour over the surface of a hillock. Beyond the water spread the black expanse of a ploughed field, with the straight line of a dark green ridge by which it was bisected running far into the distance, and there joining the leaden, threatening horizon. On either side of the soft road along which the phaeton was pursuing the even tenor of its way, bright green, tangled, juicy belts of rye were sprouting here and there into stalk. Not a motion was perceptible in the air, only a sweet freshness and everything looked extraordinarily clear and bright. Near the road I could see a little brown path winding its way among the dark green quarter-grown stems of rye, and somehow that path reminded me vividly of our village, and somehow, through some connection of thought, the idea of that village reminded me vividly of Sonetchka, and so of the fact that I was in love with her. Notwithstanding my fondness for Dmitri and the pleasure which his frankness had afforded me, I now felt as though I desired to hear no more about his feelings and intentions with regard to Lubov Sergeyevna, but to talk unstintedly about my own love for Sonetchka, who seemed to me an object of affection of a far higher order. Yet for some reason or another I could not make up my mind to tell him straight out how splendid it would seem when I had married Sonetchka and we were living in the country, of how we should have little children who would crawl about the floor and call me papa and of how delighted I should be when he, Dmitri, brought his wife, Lubov Sergeyevna, to see us, wearing an expensive gown. Accordingly, instead of saying all that, I pointed to the setting sun, and merely remarked, "'Look, Dmitri, how splendid!' To this, however, Dmitri made no reply, since he was evidently dissatisfied at my answering his confession, which it had cost him so much to make, by directing his attention to natural objects 
to which he was in general indifferent. Upon him nature had an effect altogether different to what she had upon myself, for she affected him rather by her industry than by her beauty. He loved her rather with his intellect than with his senses. I am absolutely happy, I went on, without noticing that he was altogether taken up with his own thoughts and oblivious of anything that I might be saying. You will remember how I told you about a girl with whom I used to be in love when I was a little boy? Well, I saw her again only this morning, and am now infatuated with her. Then I told him, despite his continued expression of indifference, about my love, and about all my plans for my future connubial happiness. Strangely enough, no sooner had I related in detail the whole strength of my feelings than I instantly became conscious of its diminution. The rain overtook us just as we were turning into the avenue of birch-trees which led to the house, but it did not really wet us. I only knew that it was raining by the fact that I felt a drop fall, first on my nose and then on my hand, and heard something begin to patter upon the young, viscous leaves of the birch-trees, as, drooping their curly branches overhead, they seemed to imbibe the pure, shining drops with an avidity which filled the whole avenue with scent. We descended from the carriage, so as to reach the house the quicker through the garden, but found ourselves confronted at the entrance door by four ladies, two of whom were knitting, one reading a book, and the fourth walking to and fro with a little dog. Thereupon Dmitri began to present me to his mother, sister, and aunt, as well as to Lubov Sergeyevna. For a moment they remained where they were, but almost instantly the rain became heavier. "'Let us go into the veranda. You can present him to us there,' said the lady whom I took to be Dmitri's mother, and we all of us ascended the entrance steps. CHAPTER Twenty Three, THE Nekhludoffs. From the first, the member of this company who struck me the most was Lubov Sergeyevna who, holding a lap-dog in her arms and wearing stout-laced boots, was the last of the four ladies to ascend the staircase, and twice stopped to gaze at me intently and then kiss her little dog. She was anything but good-looking, since she was red-haired, thin, short, and slightly crooked. What made her plain face all the plainer was the queer way in which her hair was parted to one side. It looked like the wigs which bald women contrive for themselves. However much I should have liked to applaud my friend, I could not find a single comely feature in her. Even her brown eyes, though expressive of good humour, were small and dull, were in fact anything but pretty. While her hands, those most characteristic of features, were, though neither large nor ill-shaped, coarse and red. As soon as we reached the veranda, each of the ladies except Dmitri's sister, Veronika, who also had been regarding me attentively out of her large dark grey eyes, said a few words to me before resuming her occupation, while Veronika herself began to read aloud from a book which she held on her lap and steadied with her finger. The Princess Maria Ivanovna was a tall, well-built woman of forty. To judge by the curls of half-gray hair which descended below her cap, one might have taken her for more, but as soon as ever one observed the fresh, extraordinarily tender, and almost wrinkleless face, as well as, most of all, the lively, cheerful sparkle of the large eyes, one involuntarily took her for less. Her eyes were black and very frank, her lips thin and slightly severe, her nose regular and slightly inclined to the left, and her hands ringless, large, and almost like those of a man, but with finely tapering fingers. 
She wore a dark blue dress, fastened to the throat, and sitting closely to her firm, still youthful waist, a waist which she evidently pinched. Lastly, she held herself very upright, and was knitting a garment of some kind. As soon as I stepped on to the veranda she took me by the hand, drew me to her as though wishing to scrutinize me more closely, and said, as she gazed at me with the same cold, candid glance as her son's, that she had long known me by report from Dmitri, and that therefore, in order to make my acquaintance thoroughly, she had invited me to stay these twenty-four hours in her house. "'Do just as you please here,' she said, "'and stand on no ceremony whatever with us, even as we shall stand on none with you. Pray, walk, read, listen, or sleep, as the mood may take you.' Sophia Ivanovna was an old maid, and the princess's younger sister, though she looked the elder of the two. She had that exceedingly overstuffed appearance which old maids always present, who are short of stature but wear corsets. It seemed as though her healthiness had shifted upwards to the point of choking her. Her short fat hands would not meet below her projecting bust, and the line of her waist was scarcely visible at all. Notwithstanding that the princess Maria Ivanovna had black hair and eyes, while Sophia Ivanovna had white hair and large, vivacious, tranquilly blue eyes, a rare combination, there was a great likeness between the two sisters, for they had the same expression, nose, and lips. The only difference was that Sophia's nose and lips were a trifle coarser than Maria's, and that when she smiled those features inclined towards the right, whereas Maria's inclined towards the left. Sophia, to judge by her dress and coiffure, was still youthful at heart, and would never have displayed grey curls, even if she had possessed them. Yet at first her glance and bearing towards me seemed very proud, and made me nervous, whereas I at once felt at home with the princess. Perhaps it was only Sophia's stoutness and a certain resemblance to portraits of Catherine the Great that gave her in my eyes a haughty aspect. But at all events I felt quite intimidated when she looked at me intently, and said, "'Friends of our friends are our friends also.' I became reassured and changed my opinion about her only when, after saying those words, she opened her mouth and sighed deeply. It may be that she owed her habit of sighing after every few words, with a great distension of the mouth and a slight drooping of her large blue eyes, to her stoutness, yet it was none the less one which expressed so much good humour that I at once lost all fear of her, and found her actually attractive. Her eyes were charming, her voice pleasant and musical, and even the flowing lines of her fullness seemed to my youthful vision not wholly lacking in beauty. I had imagined that Lubov Sergievna, as my friend's friend, would at once say something friendly and familiar to me. Yet, after gazing at me fixedly for a while, as though in doubt whether the remark she was about to make to me would not be too friendly, she at length asked me what faculty I was in. After that she stared at me as before, in evident hesitation as to whether or not to say something civil and familiar until, remarking her perplexity, I besought her with a look to speak freely. Yet all she then said was, They tell me the universities pay very little attention to science now, and turned away to call her little dog. All that evening she spoke only in disjointed fragments of this kind, fragments which had no connection either with the point or with one another. Yet I had such faith in Dmitri and he so often kept looking from her to me with an expression which mutely asked me, "'Now what do you think of that?' 
that though I entirely failed to persuade myself that in Lubov Sergeyevna there was anything to speak of, I could not bear to express the thought even to myself. As for the last member of the family, Veronika, she was a well-developed girl of sixteen. The only good features in her were a pair of dark grey eyes, which, in their expression of gaiety mingled with quiet attention, greatly resembled those of her aunt, a long coil of flaxen hair, and extremely delicate, beautiful hands. I expect, Monsieur Nicholas, you will find it wearisome to hear a story begun from the middle," said Sofia Ivanovna, with her good-natured sigh as she turned over some pieces of clothing which she was sewing. The reading aloud had ceased for the moment because Dmitri had left the room on some errand or another. Or perhaps you have read Rob Roy before," she added. At that period I thought it incumbent upon me, in virtue of my student's uniform, to reply in a very clever and original manner to every question put to me by people whom I did not know very well, and regarded such short, clear answers as, yes, no, I like it, or I do not care for it, as things to be ashamed of. Accordingly, looking down at my new and fashionably cut trousers, and the glittering buttons on my tunic, I replied that I had never read Rob Roy, but that it interested me greatly to hear it, since I preferred to read books from the middle rather than from the beginning. It is twice interesting, I added with a self-satisfied smirk, for then one can guess what has gone before as well as what is to come after. The princess smiled what I thought was a forced smile, but one which I discovered later to be her only one. Well, perhaps that is true, she said, but tell me, Nicholas, you will not be offended if I drop the monsieur. Tell me, are you going to be in town long? When do you go away? I do not know quite. Perhaps to-morrow, or perhaps not for some while yet, I replied for some reason or another, though I knew perfectly well that in reality we were to go to-morrow. I wish you could stop longer, both for your own sake and for Dmitri's, she said in a meditative manner. At your age friendship is a weak thing. I felt that every one was looking at me, and waiting to see what I should say, though certainly Veronika made a pretense of looking at her aunt's work. I felt, in fact, as though I were being put through an examination, and that it behoved me to figure in it as well as possible. "'Yes, to me Dmitri's friendship is most useful,' I replied. "'But to him mine cannot be of any use at all, since he is a thousand times better than I.' Dmitri could not hear what I said, or I should have feared his detecting the insincerity of my words. Again the princess smiled her unnatural, yet characteristically natural, smile. "'Just listen to him,' she said. "'But it is you who are the little monster of perfection.' "'Monster of perfection,' I thought to myself. "'That is splendid. I must make a note of it. Yet, to dismiss yourself, he has been extraordinarily clever in that quarter,' she went on, in a lower tone which pleased me somehow, as she indicated Lubov Sergeyevna with her eyes, since he has discovered in our poor little auntie—such was the pet name which they gave Lubov—all sorts of perfections which I, who have known her and her little dog for twenty years, had never suspected. Veronika, go and tell them to bring me a glass of water,' she added, letting her eyes wander again. Probably she had bethought her that it was too soon, or not entirely necessary, to let me into all the family secrets. Yet no, let him go, for he has nothing to do, while you are reading. "'Pray go to the door, my friend,' she said to me, and walk about fifteen steps down the passage, then halt and call out pretty loudly, "'Peter!' 
bring Maria Ivanovna a glass of iced water. And she smiled her curious smile once more. I expect she wants to say something about me in my absence, I thought to myself, as I left the room. I expect she wants to remark that she can see very clearly that I'm a very, very clever young man. Hardly had I taken a dozen steps when I was overtaken by Sophia Ivanovna, who, though fat and short of breath, trod with surprising lightness and agility. "'Merci, mon cher,' she said. "'I will go and tell them myself.'" CHAPTER Twenty Four, LOVE Sophia Ivanovna, as I afterwards came to know her, was one of those rare young old women who are born for family life, but to whom that happiness has been denied by fate. Consequently, all that store of their love which should have been poured out upon a husband and children becomes pent up in their hearts until they suddenly decide to let it overflow upon a few chosen individuals. Yet so inexhaustible is that store of old maid's love that despite the number of individuals so selected there remains an abundant surplus of affection which they lavish upon all by whom they are surrounded, upon all, good or bad, whom they may chance to meet in their daily life. Of love there are three kinds—love of beauty, the love which denies itself, and practical love. Of the desire of a young man for a young woman, as well as of the reverse instance, I am now speaking, for of such tenderesses I am wary, seeing that I have been too unhappy in my life to have been able ever to see in such affection a single spark of truth, but rather a lying pretense, in which sensuality connubial relations, money, and the wish to bind hands or to unloose them, have rendered feeling such a complex affair as to defy analysis. Rather, I am speaking of that love for a human being which, according to the spiritual strength of its possessor, concentrates itself either upon a single individual, upon a few, or upon many. Of love for a mother, a father, a brother, little children, a friend, a compatriot, of love, in short, for one's neighbor. Love of beauty consists in a love of the sense of beauty and of its expression. People who thus love conceive the object of their affection to be desirable only in so far as it arouses in them that pleasurable sensation of which the consciousness and the expression soothes the senses. They change the object of their love frequently, since their principal aim consists in ensuring that the voluptuous feeling of their adoration shall be constantly titillated. To preserve in themselves this sensuous condition, they talk unceasingly, and in the most elegant terms, on the subject of the love which they feel, not only for its immediate object, but also for objects upon which it does not touch at all. This country of ours contains many such individuals, individuals of that well-known class who, cultivating the beautiful, not only discourse of their cult to all and sundry, but speak of it pre-eminently in French. It may seem a strange and ridiculous thing to say, but I am convinced that among us we have had in the past, and still have, a large section of society, notably women, whose love for their friends, husbands, or children would expire to-morrow if they were debarred from dilating upon it in the tongue of France. Love of the second kind, renunciatory love, consists in a yearning to undergo self-sacrifice for the object beloved, regardless of any consideration whether such self-sacrifice will benefit or injure the object in question. 
there is no evil which i would not endure to show both the world and him or her whom i adore my devotion there we have the formula of this kind of love people who thus love never look for reciprocity of affection since it is a finer thing to sacrifice yourself for one who does not comprehend you also they are also mistake also they are always painfully eager to exaggerate the merits of their sacrifice usually constant in their love for the reason that they would find it hard to forego the kudos of the deprivations which they endure for the object beloved always ready to die to prove to him or her the entirety of their devotion but sparing of such small daily proofs of their love as call for no special effort of self-immolation they do not much care whether you eat well sleep well keep your spirits up or enjoy good health nor do they ever do anything to obtain for you those blessings if they have it in their power but should you be confronting a bullet or have fallen into the water or stand in danger of being burnt or have had your heart broken in a love affair well for all these things they are prepared if the occasion should arise moreover people addicted to love of such a self-sacrificing order are invariably proud of their love exacting jealous distrustful and strange to tell anxious that the object of their adoration should incur perils so that they may save it from calamity and console it thereafter and even be vicious so that they may purge it of its vice suppose now that you are living in the country with a wife who loves you in this self-sacrificing manner you may be healthy and contented and have occupations which interest you while on the other hand your wife may be too weak to superintend the household work which in consequence will be left to the servants or to look after the children who in consequence will be left to the nurses or to put her heart into any work whatsoever and all because she loves nobody and nothing but yourself she may be patently ill yet she will say not a word to you about it for fear of distressing you she may be patently ennui yet for your sake she will be prepared to be so for the rest of her life she may be patently depressed because you stick so persistently to your occupations whether sport books farming state service or anything else and see clearly that they are doing you harm yet for all that she will keep silence and suffer it to be so yet should you but fall sick and despite her own ailments and your prayers that she will not distress herself in vain your loving wife will remain sitting inseparably by your bedside every moment you will feel her sympathetic gaze resting upon you and as it were saying there i told you so but it is all one to me and i shall not leave you in the morning you may be a little better and move into another room the room however will be insufficiently warmed or set in order the soup which alone you feel you could eat will not have been cooked nor will any medicine have been sent for yet though worn out with night-watching your loving wife will continue to regard you with an expression of sympathy to walk about on tiptoe and to whisper unaccustomed and obscure orders to the servants you may wish to be read to and your loving wife will tell you with a sigh that she feels sure you will be unable to hear her reading and only grow angry at her awkwardness in doing it wherefore you would better not be read to at all you may wish to walk about the room and she will tell you that it would be far better for you not to do so you may wish to talk with some friends who have called and she will tell you that talking is not good for you at nightfall the fever may come upon you again and you may wish to be left alone whereupon your loving wife though wasted pale and full of yawns 
will go on sitting in a chair opposite you, as dusk falls, until her very slightest movement, her very slightest sound, rouses you to feelings of anger and impatience. You may have a servant who has lived with you for twenty years, and to whom you are attached, and who would tend you well, and to your satisfaction during the night, for the reason that he has been asleep all day, and is, moreover, paid a salary for his services. Yet your wife will not suffer him to wait upon you. No, everything she must do herself with her weak, unaccustomed fingers, of which you follow the movements with suppressed irritation, as those pale members do their best, to uncork a medicine-bottle, to snuff a candle, to pour out physic, or to touch you in a squeamish sort of way. If you are an impatient, hasty sort of man, and beg of her to leave the room, you will hear by the vexed, distressed sounds which come from her that she is humbly sobbing and weeping behind the door, and whispering foolishness of some kind to the servant. Finally, if you do not die, your loving wife, who has not slept during the whole three weeks of your illness, a fact of which she will constantly remind you, will fall ill in her turn, waste away, suffer much, and become even more incapable of any useful pursuit than she was before, while by the time that you have regained your normal state of health she will express to you her self-sacrificing affection only by shedding around you a kind of benignant dullness which involuntarily communicates itself both to yourself and to every one else in your vicinity. The third kind of love, practical love, consists of a yearning to satisfy every need, every desire, every caprice, nay, every vice, of the being beloved. People who love thus always love their life long, since the more they love, the more they get to know the object beloved, and the easier they find the task of loving it, that is to say, of satisfying its desires. Their love seldom finds expression in words, but if it does so it expresses itself neither with assurance nor beauty, but rather in a shamefaced awkward manner, since most people of this kind invariably have misgivings that they are loving unworthily. People of this kind love even the faults of their adored one, for the reason that those faults afford them the power of constantly satisfying new desires. They look for their affection to be returned, and even deceive themselves into believing that it is returned, and are happy accordingly. Yet, in the reverse case, they will still continue to desire happiness for their beloved one, and try by every means in their power, whether moral or material, great or small, to provide it. Such practical love it was, love for her nephew, for her niece, for her sister, for Lubov Sergeyevna, and even for myself, because I loved Dmitri, that shone in the eyes, as well as in the every word and movement, of Sofia Ivanovna. Only long afterwards did I learn to value her at her true worth. Yet even now the question occurred to me, what has made Dmitri, who throughout has tried to understand love differently to other young fellows, and has always had before his eyes the gentle, loving Sofia Ivanovna, suddenly fall so deeply in love with the incomprehensible Lubov Sergeyevna, and declare that in his aunt he can only find good qualities. Verily, it is a true saying that a prophet hath no honour in his own country. One of two things. Either every man has in him more of bad than of good, or every man is more receptive to bad than to good. Lubov Sergeyevna he has not known for long, whereas his aunt's love he has known since the day of his birth. End of section six. Recording by Bill Borst.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.